This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things and talk about them. And sometimes we read the final volume of a long-running comic book. Uh, which, you know what, honestly, is a little weird to say this is long-running in a world where there are, like, action comics is a thousand issues. Also, I feel like this is actually one of the shortest series that we've done. I think in terms of actual issues i'd have to check to see how many single how many issues swamp thing is uh but this is definitely shorter than sandman and it feels shorter than swamp thing but swamp thing might actually be shorter but that those uh swamp thing issues we've talked about this a little bit at the beginning of this series those you know especially alan moore comics but i think bronze age comics in general are a lot denser than modern comics are a lot more is happening in a single issue yeah these issues feel i guess because they're more graphic based the action is like more visual and there's less dialogue and less sort mm-hmm. of well it's just like there's oscillatory text there's this uh decompression is the thing people talk a lot about with comics kind of starting in i mean it, it's been a gradual process of comics decompressing over time but um the conversation really picks up in like the early and mid 2000s but there's this thing where you can look at older comics compared to modern comics and there is less chronological that might not be the word i'm looking there's less less time is passing in between panels in a modern comic than an older comic you see the action over time has become more granular i think in an attempt to be more cinematic so like there's literally just less space for things to happen in modern comics than in a lot of older comics. Well, we talked about this when we did The Left Bank. Yeah. Who, who's the The Left art? Bank, Jason. Jason. Yeah, we talked about that, how that really sort of mimics the sort of flow of if you were filming a movie, the mm-hmm. action fights and the sequences. And I think this also follows that same thing. It has a really sort of visual kind of graphic move to it that you kind of like, I mean, it doesn't, it does things more with a traditional panel layout than like Sandman and even mm-hmm. Swamp Thing did. So that was kind of like different. It was like sort of a nod back to the old style of comics because it didn't have those sort of breakout um, panels and different shaped panels. It sort of followed a more traditional rectangle or square panels mm-hmm. for a lot of the series. But I feel like the action moved. I mean, you could just scan the action because there was less text, so you could move quickly through the comic and you could read it faster. And that made it sort of feel more like a movie because you were quickly paging through and seeing what was happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are... There's some of that in this... Well, you know what? I honestly did not say what we were talking about. Let's do that right now. We are we have, for a while now, been talking about The Wicked and the Divine. We are now covering the final uh, collected volume, volume 9. Yes. Uh, okay. Is the title of it. Uh, you know, same... From you know, 2019, general... so also very... Yeah, this is the most... Very recent. This is the most current comic we've done. Yeah, same creative team. Writer, Karen Gillan. Artist, Jamie McKelvey. Colorist, Matthew Wilson. Letterer, Clayton Cowles. Designer, Sergio Serrano. Editor, Chrissy Williams. And Flatter, D. Acunif. So What's that, a Flatter? Uh, they do... That's like the first part of the coloring process, I believe. Okay. Like they lay down like the flat colors. I, I could be totally wrong about that, but I believe that's what a flatter is. You know, so they're essentially they would be essentially be assisting Wilson 
But yeah, this is the the last part of it. So what I was going to say was, you see it a little bit in The Wicked and the Divine, but Jason, you bring up Jason as a good example of there being a lot of parts where the action is so chopped up that it's literally just, it's like each panel is only covering like a second sometimes to get like the full motion of like a punch or someone doing like a physical task, which is not something you would ever get in older comics. They would, a guy goes to pick a lock and it would just be like, and he picked the lock and then the next panel the safe would be open. So in a modern comic, you might get a whole page sequence of him picking the lock with little tick, 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 tick sound effects and the tumblers going up and down that you just wouldn't get back then. And it just leads to there being less actual space. Like, they're taking up less space on the timeline per issue than an older comic. So, this is the end. It's issues 40 to 45. Mm -hmm. And it wraps up the series. And like we mentioned before, it's called OK. So, do you want to sort of give a synopsis of where we left off? Because the episode that we recorded before this was the interlude episode with the specials. Yeah, so where where did we leave off? I mean, uh, Laura has denounced her godhood, which Minerva, who we know is anarchy now, seems to think that has taken her off the board. The Morrigan has died. Baphomet went back to being Nurgle. Yeah, and he is, he's retreated into the underground to finish constructing a temple in memoriam to the dead Morrigan. Woden has Cassandra and the Norns captive. He is trying to uh, get... He does not know that Minerva is Anarchy, but he, he knows they were working together in some capacity, and he's trying to get the uh, the heads. Right, and then the heads, which we now know are Lucifer, Anana, Tara... That's it. That's it. But also, Mir Mir is also a head, but he's not the head that's in the clone, in the sort of machine that Woden created that's supposed to amplify their powers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and he is, uh, like, under duress working with his father, who is Woden. Uh, who is David Blaine. Who is David Blaine, yeah. And Ball is what exposed as a child killer who blew up Valhalla, and now he's kind of in the wind. Uh, I think that's about it right i think that's enough yeah so that that's the stage when we get into issue 40 uh which is in kind of a weird issue so it starts with it's do, it's doing like well this is actually a good a good point to bring up so you talked about how like there uh there is less on per like on terms of page structure there's less formalistic experimentation and in like improvisation isn't the right word, but that's the word I want to use than we would see in like a Swamp Thing or a Sandman. But I think one of the things that's really cool about this series is that in terms of issue structure, there's a lot of experimentation. Right, right. It's very avant-garde. And so this issue is essentially like a found footage movie in the form of a comic book. It opens with this, uh, you know, black page with white text that just says footage recorded surrounding the events of the O2 disaster of 1st May 2015. And so the bulk of this issue, it's cutting back and forth between different pieces of recovered, like, cell phone video footage uh, leading up to this big event at the O2 arena, the Millennium Dome in London. Uh, and most of it follows these two guys who I believe we have seen before. Yeah, they're I mean, kind of like the 
fans that show up whenever there's like a fan episode. Yeah, I think they're specifically, I believe we see them at like Persephone's first gig. I could be wrong, but they reference like being there and they talk a, a lot about her and about their fandom in general. But it's these two dudes who I appear to be like college age probably and they're vlogging their experience leading up to this huge event that Ball is having at the O2. And we get like, this is sort of winding back to the tone of the beginning of the series in a way and sort of really examining these guys fandom they talk about like oh you're such like a typical persephone fan and they discuss the various merits of the different gods and it does feel like a really real sort of studied take on like what fandom is like and how people talk about the things they are fans of i think it's also interesting because it's sort of I mean, these gods are all about their personas, their social media status, their celebrity status. And we get to see the backside of it where there's this fight for good and evil with Anaki and um, Minerva and what's going on behind the scenes. But what the fans see is the same thing that they always see, which is these celebrities. They don't know that Ball is a child killer Mm -hmm. and he... He's in this sort of existential crisis mode, and he's trying to fight off this thing that he perceives as the darkness. So they still revere him as this like awesome figure, and they're very excited to go to this concert. Yeah, I think a lot of this issue is about deconstructing Ball's persona as compared to his reality. And I think ultimately, by the end of this volume... I think Ball as a character, his arc throughout the series ends up being a really compelling critique of masculinity. And then, yeah, because we and this look, is like setting up a lot of that. We learn at this point from the next page that it's a, a variation on Cassandra and Dionysus' plan to harness the psychic energy of the hive mind and amplify it using Woden's technology. So Baal wants to bring everyone together and ramp them up and then use that energy. He says he wants to use the energy to lure the darkness. But there's... Woden points out, because we, well, we we get there a conversation between uh, Woden, Minerva, and Baal that's through, like, security footage from, like, Woden's lab or something. And he's already like, well, there's something weird about this design. And it's very similar to the thing with... Uh, Anarchy and the big machine with the knives, right. where it's like he doesn't totally understand the thing he's building. But it's ostensibly supposed to, yeah, replicate the hive mind and create a big psychic lure to draw in the the darkness. There's a very fucked up scene. Well, like, it becomes clear immediately, right? Like, because of the disaster thing, because of what we know, you're you're immediately on edge. You're like, Ball's gonna kill all these people, right? Did you you pick that up immediately? Right. And also because it's kind of the same thing. He's luring, he's making a child sacrifice on a massive scale because all of his fans are young people who are attracted to his celebrity. But he's justifying it like, oh, it's an over 18 event. Like that's good, that's going to assuage his guilt. But then there's this really fucked up scene, like I'm saying, where he like has this conversation with his mom where he's sort of trying to ask for permission from her. To be like this, where he's like, you know, if you call, you could save everybody, but it would hurt a lot of people. Would you do it? And she, you know, tries to offer him some comfort as a mom. I think just thinking he's going through regular celebrity stuff, 
And then he asks her to come to the event. I know, and his little sister, which is kind of dark. But you know what? Now that we we realize that even though we know that Ball is essentially dark, he has like a very dark side. He, the type of god that he is and whatever godlike powers affect his personality, he's a very grim yeah. god. And then we get this sequence... Uh... Or it's unclear what this is initially. We learn by the end of this volume what's happening here. But Minerva goes to talk to someone who's viewing her through like a blue fish eye lens. And she's like straight up like Ball's going to kill all these people. It's going to be the biggest sacrifice of all time. And this is going to... And she says that this is going to give her the the psychic energy she needs to complete the ritual. I also thought it was really interesting in that these... There's cut scenes. There's like conversations with ball and he's looking into like a computer screen and he's talking to someone and then there's scenes where he's talking to his mother and then there's cut footage of some of the fans that are waiting outside to get in and they're all drawn from the same angle yeah so it gives us sort of weird continuity that kind of is like a little bit disorienting also and then you switch to where minerva's talking in the circular bubbles yeah also notable visually ball is not wearing the necklace anymore no. But yeah, so then it cuts into the event. We get a lot of like people talking, a lot of like interpersonal reactions. Like the, one of the characters has this little mini arc where he gets over a girl being friends to him but not being into him. And then like they, he at the event sort of starts to rekindle their friendship. Um, we get like as the event is popping off and Ball is drawing the power and leading up to this explosion, we get to see a bunch of like small like you know um, not small but yeah you know like less like secondary yeah. and tertiary characters that we'd seen throughout the series so it's like the cop that gentle annie brought back to life shows up uh, the, the sackman impersonator that they break into because they think it's really sackman yeah the lucifer impersonator that persephone almost bangs but doesn't uh i forget who else i think it's supposed to be one of John Blake's ex-girlfriends? Yeah, and I think it's the... I don't... I can't I can't remember if it's the people that are in the car when Baphomet shows up. Um, I don't know. But there's also two people from the gig where they try to set off... Woden sets off the bomb while mm-hmm. Persephone's performing. Uh, is there anybody else that's and It's notable? interesting because they're talking and then there's another another panel... That shows them in this sort of pink tones where they're sort of mesmerized by Ball. And he's kind of putting the people in a trance. Yeah, and now he has the lightning necklace back on. So that's created, now they're, like, the idea is that, like, for a while, he was believing his own lie, right? And there was no barrier between real Ball and performance Ball. And now he has, it has gone, because he's been exposed, it's gone back to being an act. That he has to consciously perform. So when we see him casually, no necklace. When we see him performing now, he's got the necklace back on. Uh, and then there's just a whole page of three panels of the O2 exploding in like a burst of light with like one of those darkness monsters inside of it. And then another whole page of the light, the monster being exploded and the light dissipating into uh, just like a crater. But. The big reveal is that uh, Laura saved some or most 
or possibly all of the people. I think it's interesting, too, because even though all of the people at the show may be depicting different gods from the pantheon that they're fans of, they all have some kind of symbol of the lightning bolt on them. Yeah, well, they're all at the ball event. They're big fans of ball. Uh, and that's, that's the end of this issue. Yeah, so Lara shows up, and she's out of her sweatpants. She's in her jeans, so we know she's gotten over her crisis of, of conscience that she... And then she says, it's going to be okay. And she's got like a big Ghostbusters looking microphone stand that mm-hmm. I guess she's using to break balls like sway over these people so she can get them out. The only thing that's not answered for me is how does Lauren know this is happening? Well, I think the event is just publicized and she was able to figure out knowing what balls deal is that this is going to be bad. I assume that's what happened. Or she was tipped off by uh, John. So we know now that Lara has forsaken her godliness, but we now know that she has not given up on trying to stop the recurrence. Yeah. And the which big... is kind of falls right into her role from the last episode where we talked a lot about how Persephone's role was to sort of be this like antagonistic Yeah, she's a destroyer. Yeah. So she's always some kind of like buffer to Anaki's role. Oh, speaking of Destroyer, that's one of the parts I like the most about the little, like, tertiary character interactions, like, leading up to the the disaster, was, like, there's a part where the two guys are having a conversation about, like, what being the Destroyer is, and this guy is talking about how he, like, relates to Laura and Persephone and the concept of the Destroyer because he keeps fucking up, like, his interpersonal relationships, and I thought that that was pretty good. Yeah. Well, the other thing I wanted to mention about this issue before we get off of it is the orientation of the panels follows the orientation of people's phones that they're recorded on. Yes. And there is even one part where a guy's like, oh, no, I'm recording in vertical, and he flips the phone, and we get one panel that's, like, blurry as the panels shift over to being horizontal, which I thought was a nice little touch. Well, it kind of embraces, like, modern technology. Yeah. So that's the end of the issue. And the next issue, issue 41, starts with a full-page picture of Mir Mir. Yeah, that's the cover. It's the close-up of him in the helmet. Uh, Which is interesting because that's what they did with the gods in the previous volume. So now he finally gets his full-face panel. So he should be happy about that. Mm -hmm. And then Woden should be happy because the first time ever in the entire series... He gets to take the moral high ground on somebody. <laughs> and he calls out Ball for blowing up the O2. And then he's like, Ball is very much like... We did it. We did it. <laughs> I had to do this. His sister is like, Mom was there. And he, he just looks at her. And then he gets angry and tells Woden to get the Valkyries. Because at this point, I think he's just... It's just the mask. I mean, it's interesting because... Ball doesn't physically wear a mask, but he's the one who's in his true personality is most hidden. Yeah. So, you know, now he's got the flames coming out of his eyes and he's just like, game over. Yeah. And then we, we get a sequence of Laura using her. She can perform some miracles, but they're clearly like not on the level of when she was a god. And we get like a sequence of her breaking into Woden's lab and breaking out uh, Erder and the Norns. They get the heads out of the machines that they're in, which we had a weird and pointless discussion about what these machines were supposed to be in the background of Woden's lab. They're the heads. He just has the heads. I I guess they just didn't show them going in the machine. So we were slightly confused. 
I think that what he was thought he could do was similar to what they did with Dionysus and the hive mind. Well, he actually says that later on when he he's like, oh, they got the heads, but uh, the the you know documentary crew. <laughs> Uh, can still access their power. So that's what was happening. He had the heads in there and was funneling their powers into them. And I guess they still he still has the technology to replicate that. I like how, too, now we get a more confident Cassandra who actually knows what's going on. And she's just like, I know what to do now. Yeah. And they, they also get uh, John off of his robot body. And he seems very into just being ahead, apparently. Or at least he doesn't want to have that robot body. Um uh, Lucifer winks at Laura when they get her out of the pod. Yeah, because it's kind of like a little reunion. So, she figures that after they blow up Woden's, there's a lot of foreshadowing here, which I think will wrap up nicely when we get to the next issue. They blow up Woden's lab, and yeah. then Cassandra says, uh, you know, what's going on? And he and Laura says she has a plan to get bodies for... Mm-hmm. The heads, and then they decide they're going to go... Oh, wait, there's a really hilarious part where Lucifer just yells, Minerva is Anaki. Like Yeah, the second they cut off the the uh, the thread that was sewing her mouth shut, she just yells, Minerva is Anaki. Uh, but yeah, so she's got a plan to get them bodies back, but one of them will have to stay ahead. I think we know who it's going to be. Well, it, I, Poor loser who never gets anything... Well, Tara volunteers for it because she does. She's got issues with her body. Understandable. Uh, I think though they want you to think it's going to be John Mimir because he's supposed he to be. Technically, already had a fully functioning body. He just didn't want it. Well, <laughs> right. his dad could track him through it or something. I don't know. So, so they go down to the underground and they. I guess I like this new, like, confident, very like kind of like new wave looking Nurgle that they have now. Yeah, well it's like it's like he still looks like Glenn Danzig, but Glenn Danzig had like a movie premiere. Right. Yeah, he's wearing like a black suit, but he still has the gold belt buckle. So he still hasn't totally abandoned the Baphomet stuff. And he's standing in the cathedral with the three bodies of the Morrigan. And you know, he has this conversation with Laura and she finally outright says the thing, which is like Hey, she, like, essentially murdered you. Right, and if you bring her back, she's just going to murder you again. And she tried to murder you again, mm-hmm. and, he, and he, she's like, you got to understand that, like, this was, like, an abusive relationship. And he admits that, like, part of what happened with him was that he just didn't recover from his parents dying. And that sort of motivated all this, and he kind of comes to terms with that. And he, he contemplates, like, leaving the Morgan as is, or bringing her back, and he... he you know, he says that he can. Like, he basically has, apparently, the same powers that she has, but maybe more, with more cost associated with them. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but then he, he ultimately does give them the bodies, and then he goes and leaves to do something? Well, we ne- we find out later on what he goes to do. And, you know, he's... This is when you really see that, like, Baphomet, the personality that Baphomet is supposed to have, doesn't really fit very well with the human that Baphomet is. What is his name? Uh, Cameron? Cameron. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I think he's definitely at odds with... I, I think part of that is that, like, 
what the Morrigan or whatever her name was wanted him to be was always at odds with whatever with the person he actually was. So Baphomet breaks the cycle physically, literally breaks yeah. the cycle, and Lucifer, Mirmir, and Inanna get their get the bodies, and then they come out and like gem and the like. Yeah, they're all in darker outfits. They got like, Lucifer has the red hair. And she's wearing a necklace with a crow's feather on it. It's a pretty it's a pretty sweet page. Well, the other thing is, he disappears. And also, Cassandra, now that she understands her powers more fully, is like, um, she can scry and find the great darkness in a way that she wasn't before. What we learn later on is that the strategy is, instead of looking for the great darkness, to look for what's making it. Uh, yeah, and that's our first indication that maybe the great darkness is not what we thought it was. Oh, he, oh, Baphomet doesn't leave here. The last thing he does in this issue is just hug Inanna. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so she's going to find the Great Darkness now. And then the, the start of the next issue, shit's popping off of the ball. And like the skyscraper he's in is engulfed in like a lightning storm. And he's avoiding calls from his mom, who he's missed 17 calls from. Yes. And then Laura says, if I text you a location, will you come? Because they, do they say it here? It might be in later on in this issue, but her... Laura and Cassandra have a conversation where they're basically like, or it might just be narration, where it's like, Ball either has to be on our side or be dead. Right. And I think also you start to see Minerva, who starts to act more like Anaki. She's already like, Mm. she's no longer pretending like she's this helpless child who doesn't understand what's happening to her. Yeah, and she's panicking. Yeah, and she's getting sort of paranoid. She's getting like angry with Ball because he's sitting on the top of the shard, like shooting off lightning like a baby. Yeah, and she's yelling at him, and he says he's busy. Yeah. Uh, but then they they go to a tunnel. This is where they have the yeah. This is the I said we need Ball on our side. That wasn't quite true. We either need Ball with us or we need Ball dead. And they are in this dark tunnel, and they are going to see the thing that is generating the great darkness, which is the creature from the Frankenstein issue. Right, it is the, the eighteen thirty recurrence. Yeah. It is the, the like, Woden's doppelganger creature thing that she created. Which is interesting. This is what I would say. There's, like, a lot of foreshadowing going on. The house that Woden lives in looks like part of the castle yeah. from the 1830s. And then sort of you can... It's like... Her sort of imagery of what that Woden clone looks like is mimicked a little bit in the aesthetic of Miramir and Woden. So yeah. Ball shows up and Cassandra and Lara, this is issue forty three? No, this is issue forty two. Yeah. And they go down to the tunnel and then there's this sort of really gruesome half panel of the creature and she's like stuck to the wall with these sort of bulbous blue iridescent lights and there's all these sort of black tentacles coming out and reaching around. Yeah, it's like she has a giant fungus growing out of her. And then her, just her arms and like her neck and head are sticking out. And then she has golden chains with manacles holding her arms up. This is really weird to me because it's like the second time in like two months I came across the same imagery because I was reading and spoiler alert if you haven't read it because it's really a bestseller at this point Mexican Gothic uh-huh. 
there's an, a scene that's almost identical to this, but it has to do with like something like slightly organic, like psychic organic material. But there is this sort of imagery of someone who is like chained to a wall and these organic creatures are feeding off of it and causing this psychic distress. And hmm. it's kind of like the same thing. Interesting. Well, so what she basically explains is that like Anarchy captured her at some point and he's basically been torturing her and making her generate the great darkness which is entirely a ruse specifically to manipulate ball into doing her bidding right because i think her power is she can manifest that what people are afraid of so this whole concept of the great darkness in this particular manifestation which is kind of weird because we talked about this in the previous episodes this is specifically meant to terrorize ball yeah it's also a weird little meta thing because, you know, she's supposed to be based on Mary Shelley, right? And then she says that I was used to make a tale of dark horror for you. Right, right. But I think when we talked about when the Great Darkness attacked, when it attacked the building and Ball was fighting, and, and I thought that it looked like one of the Valkyries. Yeah. And then we were kind of like, that's a weird thing. But it turns out that this is sort of, the Great Darkness is manifested in this imagery that speaks directly to Ball. Yeah, but it's also like there is a the great darkness creatures and what Woden and Mirmir's creations have like th- this like wing thing on the head is like this unifying mm-hmm. aesthetic piece that they all have because she has it like it's like a uh, headpiece with a monocle, right? And then that's like on the crest of his Mirmir's helmet, and then all the Valkyries have that, and then the great darkness has like this weird spiny tentacle face that has the same general shape. Of that, but yeah, she's she she says like yeah, like the great darkness existed to manipulate him, and she says she he asks why, and she says, "You are not one who would hurt without cause, ball." So he changed what appeared necessary, so and so made you her creature, and she starts drawing this comparison between him, and then this really brutal part happens. Like this is what I'm talking about, where it's like a lot of this issue is a lot of this volume is dedicated to deconstructing ball, and by extension, his sort of masculine persona. But it's also... Because he calls her a machine that kills. And then... What does it say? Where, where does she fucking say it? Because there's a part where she t- totally owns him. He says, so you're a machine that kills people. Do what's right. Kill me. And then she says... I am not the only machine that kills people. Kill me. At the end. Well, I think that's what's kind of... And then he does it. It's almost exact... It's sort of like this self-replicating Frankenstein's monster where at this point we realize that Ball has been... We thought it was Woden being manipulated by Anarchy, but now we realize that for the... Well, we'll deal with that later. That seemed also brutal. But yeah, but it's like this idea we get presented here is like Ball was sold to this hero narrative, this mythical superhero narrative, and it turned him into... A machine that kills people. Yeah, and then, of course, at the end of that scene, Ball sets the whole place on fire. Yeah. And then there's kind of like a weird comment where it's like she screams, but she sounds grateful. So I think, like, Ball sort of releases her from the captivity of Anaki, who's already gone at this point. Mm -hmm. So who knows what would have happened to her in the end. But I think it's interesting because it brings back that sort of one of the recurrences. 
Yeah. And solves that mystery of what happened when the monster walked away, which is like when we talked about Victor Laval's Destroyer. Mm. In the book, it's kind of like dot, dot, dot. It's open-ended. The mm. monster walks off into, you know, the forest and he, you know... You, you think he's going to end up in Anark, which is where he's heading. Yeah. But it's kind of like it's never really resolved what actually happens to the monster. And here's two kind of interesting takes on what happens Yeah. to the creature. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing... Oh, so the other thing that I like about her being like the, the Mary Shelley riff and her being so important and being the one that kind of like owns Ball <laughs> and being important in this critique of masculinity is that like Mary Shelley as a writer was someone who was, I think, deeply concerned with the idea of masculinity. I mean, she wrote, like, The Last Man, or whatever that's called. And then, you know, there's Frankenstein, which is ultimately the story about, like, what, about the, the motherless man, right? And I think also, I mean, she was also a secondary issue that we talked about a lot in the Destroyer episode, is that Mary Shelley was one of the early writers who sort of embrace that sort of horror of man's fear of technology yeah yeah and then i think also this talks and like if social media is equal to technology this series deals with social media in the way that mary shelley dealt with technology in frankenstein sure yeah well yeah so then we cut back to the underground and um Everybody's the Norns and Anana and is that that's Baphomet? Yeah, and Lucifer and Lars Head are just sort of chilling and Mirror Head Tara. Yeah, Mirror goes and he texts his dad, and it's kind of sweet and sad. He says, "Hey, Dad, I, you know, don't waste time trying to trace this. The Great Darkness was made by a machine. Anarchy did it. Anarchy is Minerva. They're the same person. Please get out." And then meanwhile, dun, dun, dun. but the interesting thing is like, he's got this look on his face that is inscrutable. Is he sad? Is he happy? The question, like I, the question, I'm going to ask a question later on after we find out what happens to Woden about what his motivation is in this scene. Cause I think it's like more unclear than it initially seems. Yeah. Because I guess Minerva's talking to him and as he's reading the text, you can't tell yeah, like, what is that expression supposed to convey? I, I don't know. I mean, he's got very complicated feelings about his dad, I'm sure. And then he finally convinces her and says, you're anarchy. And she's like, it's a name as good as any. And he says, if we're playing Big Secret Reveals. And then he clicks on his phone. <laughs> I love the part when he gets the text. And he's, they're talking and he gets the text and he looks at it and he just goes, so... Like it's like okay. Well, you have Everything to remember he's now. like an older man in that costume, so he's not like. Yeah, so he accidentally texts back a bunch of nonsensical emojis <laughs> to his son. Um, he replies <laughs> takes with a picture of the floor. He replies with a gif. But yeah, so he he brings in the Valkyries, and then she's like, she like usurps control over them. Well, we know she can control the Valkyries because she was doing it before. And then she brutally hunts him. She, she says, oh, David, I've done many awful and necessary things, but you had a choice. And even at this late date, all your choices were bad. And she's saying this as the Valkyries are literally tearing him apart with their bare hands and turning him to just like a bloody mess on the floor. Yeah. And I think it's kind of like hoisted by your own batard. He, he's done in by these women that he was manipulating the whole series. It's kind of really brutal. Like at one point there's just like a panel where the Valkyries are like 
digging into his glass face paint and just like tearing it apart. Yeah. He tries really to be like, oh, I could lure them there. And she's like, at this point, the only person that would come is your son. And which is a weird thing where it's like the villain taunts him briefly with like, guess what, you fucking idiot? Your son still loves you, but nobody <laughs> else does. And now you're, and you've made nothing but terrible decisions and now you're dead. Um, but the other question is like, I don't think this is true. I think he was genuinely trying to warn him because he does, at on some level, love his dad, even though he's a fucking terrible person who did awful things to him. Well, remember, but I think there's also because of the ambiguity of his facial expression and how intelligent he is. There's room to be like, oh, he warned him because he was trying to provoke his dad into a conflict with Anarchy, so he would die. But remember, in the beginning, Woden played the scene to Mirmir saying that he would take his godhood because he knew that Mirmir didn't want it. Yeah, well, there's also the scene where when when we thought he was talking to the Valkyrie Golem, where it turns out he was talking to Mirmir, where he says, like, I'm never going to let anyone hurt you or take you. And we thought that was him being creepy with his giant, you know, missile booby sexy lady robot. But it was like, I think actually him being sweet with his son... Well, I think if this is sort of a comment on, like, modern masculinity, then this sort of concept of the complicated father-son relationship, it just kind of fits right in with the whole situation. Yeah, and I think, like, this is drawing another, like, he's, again, like, Ball and the creature and Woden are all sort of reflections of each other, right? They're all manipulated by anarchy. They all had differing levels of agency in that manipulation Woden had the most he knew he was doing fucked up things and chose to do them ball was choosing to do fucked up things but didn't know exactly what was going on and then the creature was completely enslaved against its will yeah so then the next scene takes place the valkyries are covered in blood and minerva says get ball's family and as they're going to get ball's family ball appears and starts attacking the valkyries yeah and then he uh, it was a really sad moment where he opens the door and his family is scared to see him. Yes. And then also at that same time, actual real cops show up and they're complicating the mix. And then we get another brutal scene with Ball, with him and Inanna. Yeah, he doesn't want, he doesn't want to deal with Inanna. I guess he, he, he doesn't want Inanna to know what he's become. Yeah, well that happens more explicitly later, but he, he, he talks about that directly. But it's like, yeah... You know, Anana's like, oh, what happened? And he's like, I can't. Like, let's just go get some revenge. <laughs> yeah, so they they find out that Wilden is dead because his dead man switch goes off and the footage of Laura killing Anaki leaks online. Oh, and then Cassandra is briefly, like, says a mean joke about Wilden dying. Oh, she says, trust Wilden to take all the fun out of him dying. And then John is horrified and she's like, oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, they don't know a lot of this background he doesn't know a lot of the background with the other gods and woden because he was kind of secluded in the lab for such a long time and that's when then baphomet has a sudden realization that he's the only underworld god left i guess the other underworld gods share some sort of form of power and he realizes that there's something he has to do and he's the only one that can do it and he disappears and then cassandra scries for him and she just goes oh and, like, did you know what he was doing at this point? I figured, I thought he would go see Dion. I think he thought that he was going to die, and he wanted to say goodbye to Dionysus. 
Yeah. That's what I thought I, was going to happen. I assumed he was going to... When she says, oh, I was like, he's going to Dionysus, I wasn't sure... That's, I think, why Cassandra said, oh. Because she realized where he was. Yeah. And then the saddest thing in the entire series happens. Yes, that is very... And it's kind of the same thing. It's like this male friendship that Baphomet had with Dionysus was very sort of honest and like sincere relationship and he realizes that this man who sacrificed himself at and ended up in this coma trying to do the good the right thing Baphomet decides I guess he's tired you know he's had he dealt with the Morgan he dealt with like the transformation he's sort of an unwilling god and he sort of makes this sort of very sort of kind of heroic decision in that he sacrifices himself so that, that Dionysus can wake up. Yeah. Well, also notable before that happens, he says this thing. He's, he's having like a one-sided conversation with him in the hospital bed. And he says this thing where he's like, you know, I had my wisecracks planned meeting up years down the line. Happily married, they'd ask. I'm not happily anything. And then he does the, the, the finger snap and he dies and Dionysus wakes up just as everyone teleports in. So then it starts... Issue 43, this is when things start to... I mean, they're crazy at this point, but yeah, they get... I mean, this issue is like the big climax, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so like... <laughs> I'm trying to think of what are these three people who were like the documentary filmmakers and now they're like pseudo-Valkyries. What do you call them? Uh, hold on, because there's a part where Woden's talking about them and he gives... I can't remember what he calls them, he, but I mean, they're supposed to be... What are their Eros, Phobos, and Nike is the gods they're supposed to okay, be. Okay, so they're like kind of like false gods. That's how I was referring to them in my notes. Uh, where is the thing? Well, okay. Uh, he just he just calls them Beth's crew. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but yeah, they're they're hanging out there, and they're they're starting to there's some cracks starting to form. You know, yeah, because yeah, I think they thought that they were going to get sort of the godlike experience where they would be like popular on social media get a lot of attention but they wouldn't have to kill people and now minerva just sees them as an extension of her like power yeah and they're like literally standing guard at the charred ruins of valhalla and tony that's the dude one whose eros is like i like drama but not the murdery drama that's not good (laughs) drama and then beth's like shut the fuck up this is what we wanted uh and then they just get like mind controlled into being puppets Right, Minerva pops through like a rainbow portal with her Valkyrie ladies, and she's gone into like full supervillain apocalypse mode. She's like, if I'm denied my plague, we'll have the ch- the children destroy this bothersome civilization instead. We still have time, just all eternity, and still so little time. And that's when we realize that the machine that would have made is a bomb, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and then everybody shows up, and there's a big fight, but we mostly just get a single splash page. Uh, that's pretty awesome. Uh, the Valkyrie Golem is back. Everyone's flying around doing a big superhero fight. There's a one part where uh, Laura's narration says it went badly until Terra got clever and actually said, click. Like, she can't snap her fingers to get her god powers, so she just says it. And, and then she turned into a giant and was fighting the giant Valkyrie. Yeah, and she's like a full-on like a Jack Kirby character, like with like... Two swords and like glowing orbs floating around her. It's pretty sick. 
And then this, you see like a little tiny in the back, the, the Cassandra and the Norns, and they're flying and they're shooting laser beams. And there, when she, whenever she shows up at the beginning of this issue, the Valkyries are bringing in a machine. But I don't think that's the bomb. I think that's the hive mind thing. Oh, the hive mind thing. Because she turns it on and everybody starts to feel sick and weak. And then Dionysus is like, no one steals my scene twice. And he like shuts it off with his powers. And he gets his big moment because like that was the machine that Woden essentially used to kill him. Right. Uh, and then the the Beth's crew loses their powers, and they they rebel, and they're like, "Let's get out of here." Is Tony's like zero hour contracts are bad enough, but zero consciousness contracts, or no? And then Beth tries to bully them again, and the other one I can't remember her name, but the 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 woman with white hair just punches her so hard that her Valkyrie visor shatters and flies off. And she says, this band sucks. I quit. <laughs> that was pretty cathartic. I mean, Beth is one of the lesser villains of the series, but it was nice to see her get some sort yeah. of comeuppance. Uh, but I did, definitely didn't want her to get her comeuppance as hard as like a Woden, you know? <laughs> uh, Cassandra reconciles with the Norn. Oh, the Valkyries peace out because they're like, okay, we woke, just woke up covered in blood like we're done here. Let's get out of here. Well, because then we realized they were mind-controlled and they might not be aware of what Minerva yeah. was making them do. Well, they said, she says we got enough holes in her memory, so I, I think like this has been happening to them the entire time they've been Valkyries. Like, I wonder if that's supposed to be part of why... Uh, I can't remember her name, but the one that, that has the falling out and then she comes back into being a Valkyrie that Minerva throws across the room. Uh, oh, the one who tries to kill Woden at the... Part of why she's so fucked up might just be that like he's been fucking with their brains. And, like, making them do stuff and making them forget it. And then um, Cassandra has, like, rec- like meets up with the Norns again and basically tells them to leave and then kisses them. Well, I think it's, at this point, the fight is over. Mm-hmm. And I think at this point, Cassandra has decided that she also will give up her godness like Lara did. And she's yeah. saying goodbye to the... Norns, because she realizes the Norns really didn't have a choice in being the Norns. They were sort of pulled in when Cassandra transformed. Yeah. Uh, and so then they show up to confront Minerva, who's really got nothing left at this point. You know, she says, I can explain everything. And then Laura's like, you got to perform. Like, and, you know, it's this whole thing like, oh, she's not creative. She can't do it. And then Laura's like, look, here, try. I'll help you. And then we get the big info dump like story of anarchy explanation for what the fuck has been going on this entire time it makes a lot of sense because we sort of get a sort of anarchy kind of like sanctioned version of it in the other issues where she talks about how her and her sisters came up with the pact but it, now you realize that it, that's 90 percent true but there is some sort of myth making on anarchy's part and then when persephone when she when Laura uses her Persephone powers and you get this um, memory, you you don't see them as old women like you did in the previous issues. You see them as young girls. Well, it starts when she's fourteen. So her sister discovers this like ability, this like like psychic magic powers to perform miracles, and she copies her and can do it herself. And so like this is the explanation for what's going on with Laura is like. This is a thing that people can do. The God thing develops is this narrative around it to help people understand it and to help them do it. And that there's 
the all of these powers have like this price and they basically develop the god narrative and the recurrence narrative as a way to basically trick people into doing into performing magic despite the cost by being like no it's not just a thing you're doing it's something that's essential to your nature you're a god rather than just like you are a part of this ritual and then over time as they like do more magic and and get more people with them they start to see the dangers of it one of them burns out well one of the people they, they brought in burns out and then anarchy develops this story of the recurrence essentially as this ritual to help them get over to help them with what they're doing and her sister rejects it and anarchy does it anyway and then we get a brief scene of her interacting with the first minerva so i guess the explanation for that person who showed up in the field at the end of like volume seven is that that was minerva and it's exactly what you said i mean in this story Anaki creates the narrative of these gods, which become part of the popular culture yeah. in society, not the other way around. They're not reincarnated versions of gods that existed. They're gods that Anaki created in different recurrences that keep coming back. Yeah, but the first god created is created by Anaki's sister, who is this like threefold god. And so she creates the other gods to support that. And like the idea of having this this god this like figure to rally around to base your story around to worship it brings them to this other new level of power and then the rest of the gods are basically anarchy ripping off her sister's story about a really powerful person and so it's like weirdly also becomes like a uh it's like a it's like a analogy to like the history of the superhero like essentially like anarchy's sister creates superman and then her sister is the rest of the industry making a bunch of other superheroes that are like that. But also we realize that Anaki, part of the fear that Anaki has of this darkness, it's a fear of death, but it's also a fear of loneliness because in creating this sort of mythos and creating this recurrence and having this sort of event that happens She's kind of separated herself from her sister, which mm. is a relationship that's very important to her. And I feel like a lot of this whole thing, this sort of, this kind of like fracture of her personality where she's Anaki and she's also Minerva is kind of a, like this sort of riff that she created with her sister during the creation of the recurrence. She's alone now with herself mm. and that's all that she has because now she has a you know, an eternal conflict with her sister, which we saw in the other recurrences and we saw in the issue where we thought we were getting the backstory of how the Pantheon was started. Yeah. and But there's a part where um, her, Anarchy's sister, uh, I also, one, like, visual detail I really like is that she's, like, caveman Frida Kahlo. Yes. Um, but she says, when she shows them the god... Uh, this is like getting back to the art metaphor she says it is a tale that you sing as long as you believe it it makes you powerful so then the other gods essentially become a shortcut allowing people to tell the tale without having to write it right like if it's like you don't have to do the hard work of coming up for a story you can just embody this one that someone else already made for you and so like that's why she's i guess that's why she's using the gods in the recurrence it's like an easy way to get people in on this ritual with her and then again, like, it's kind of, like, gets back to the idea of, like, 
she's the industry and you're creating art under capitalism and you have to play by her rules and tell the stories that she wants to tell but in a way that makes it easier for you like it, it's again like ultimately at the end through all of this like mythical storytelling and people dying this story ends up being both a critique and a celebration of pop music yeah and i think also this explains a lot when we talked about the issue with the different uh, recurrences that happened and we were kind of like why do some gods only show up at a certain time and why do some gods seem to repeat in every recurrence and i think it's because those gods are easier for anarchy to control yeah so, I mean, that's that's the end of her story, and... And she kind of... You, you get this sort of false sense that Minerva is repentant, because she's like, thank you for showing me that I've forgotten my own story, and blah, yeah. blah, blah, and you're like, okay. Well, she's so impossibly old, is the other thing. Like, as evil as all the stuff she's done is, it's also like, she is so old as to be completely alien. Yeah. Uh, but yeah... Uh, they all have now come to realize what they've gone through and like what being a god is. Tara calls her out, um, you know, and it's like they they get back to the thing. So it's like not really like we thought it was like oh she chooses them, but that's not really what's going on. She's basically like yeah, like your proximity is mostly just a coincidence. So she's less of a mastermind than I thought she was. But also I think it depends on how the last recurrence played out. Yeah. How weak or strong she is. Because remember there's the one recurrence where she just spends 90 years in darkness because she's... That's because she fucked it up. Yeah. And that's what she's afraid of happening. And that's what she thinks death is. But they all sort of like have this moment where they say, I, I thought I was a god and I'm not. And they relinquish their godhood like Laura did and go back to being human and then uh, it gets to Lucifer, and Lucifer says, I'm not a god, but never been a god. I'm Lucifer, darlings. And she erupts in flames. And then we got a nice title page, which is, we hate it when our friends become diabolical. I, um, I like that when they renounce their godhood and their strip, the sort of like their god imagery like is like taken away from them. Mm-hmm. They all look really young. Yeah, I feel. I think it's like getting back to like at the end of the day, like these are young people who are gonna die in like a couple of days, probably. Like it's really like pressing on, like, hey, remember how fucked up this is. And then the cover of the next issue, we get the the close up face thing on uh, Minerva. Yeah, looking like angelic, and then the cops show up and arrest the Valkyries. Uh, and then we get like the um. The resolution to the Lucifer and Laura dynamic in this issue. Where, like, Lucifer doesn't want to give up the godhood. She's still sold on this narrative. She's, like, going to essentially usurp Laura as the destroyer. She's throwing fire around. This is kind of like what we saw in the previous issue, where a lot of the storylines are Lucifer refusing to give up Yeah, that's like that's, like, kind of like what Lucifer's role ends up being. Yeah, this is definitely paying off on the foreshadowing from the nun issue, which I think retroactively makes me like that nun issue a little bit more than I did at the time when we were reading it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, and then they have like essentially like a sing-off with their performances, (laughs) but Laura gets through and tells, you know, this story, this allegory that's essentially like, you know, there were two girls in hell 
uh, but like and I got out and I'm gonna help you get out too and it's like she acknowledges like you're a person you're human you're fucked up and there's trauma and shit and like you don't need to be whatever you think like Lucifer is like I'm gonna help you and it's cool I like this panel too because it sort of is the balance to when they become the gods and they fall down through this sort of Mm -hmm. full page panel where they're falling down and then they hit the bottom and then they're gods she is climbing out of a full page panel and sort of unbecoming a god Mm -hmm. and then she like like I mean like Lucifer has this like tantrum about like essentially about like being a celebrity and then she like Laura's like dreams aren't real and she finally breaks through and she's like okay I'm Eleanor but we also know from Eleanor's backstory that before she became a god she felt like she was a nobody yeah. You know, she was sort of invisible. She didn't have a lot of friends. and Yeah, and then she was a dick to her one friend, and now that friend is dead. Yeah. And her and Laura kiss, and her god powers go away, and Persephone, or Minerva is like, uh, well, um, I don't have any powers anymore. It's all over. Like, you fucked this whole thing up for me forever. Like, and she's afraid of, like, dying and going into the darkness. Uh, and she talks about that. Like, they're gonna... Laura... They agree, like, they're not gonna kill her. No more killing. And then Laura's like, I'm gonna kill her. <laughs> like, it is like that thing I talked about. Like, the D&D group where you're all discussing whether or not you should kill the bad guy. And then somebody's like... <laughs> you're like, why are you rolling dice? And they're like, ah, I'm hitting him with my axe. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, no, okay. Uh, but then um, she pleads with them and she says the thing about, like, I, you know, I'm in, in darkness forever and eternity and, like, I don't want to go through that. And Dionysus is like, uh, hey, I died. And that's not what dying is like. It's you're just gone. There's nothing. And you don't have to worry about it. And, like, it's okay. Yeah, and then there's sort of like, he has this heartfelt moment where he's reasoning with her and talking to her like a human being. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, you're right. This is going to work out really great. And then Ball just grabs her and he's like, Bucket. Well, see, so here's the thing. I'm reading this, and I'm like, okay, like this is all very nice and cool, but like, and I get it. Like, I guess Kieran Gillen is like a liberal or something, but I'm a radical leftist, and I don't think if you make the plague or you c- convince someone to kill children or you kill those children after someone convinced you to do it, that you should get to be alive anymore. Like, I'm sorry to be Jim Shooter and demanding that Jean Grey die at the end of the Phoenix Saga, but like. You gotta die. Darth Vader has to die. Even though it was sad that he fell to darkness, he helped facilitate the destruction of an entire planet. You need to be not alive. And then, like, Laura chills out and she's about to show mercy on her. And then a silhouetted ball behind her says, she says, she deserves to be dead, but I don't want to be that person anymore. And then a silhouetted ball appears behind Minerva and says, yeah, you're right. And he grabs her, and they both go over the side of the But I also think that Ball realizes he can't really, he doesn't think, he knows that he can't live with the things that he did as a god, as a human being now. Yeah, but they say and it later, but like... he doesn't want Anaki, uh, Inanna, to see him. Well, yeah, they have a really, like, before, right before he goes over, they have this moment where he said, where Inanna tells him, like, we get to live, like, it's, we got the happy ending, essentially. And he says, I would love to live with you, but that would mean living with me. I wish I was the person you deserve, but I threw that away. And then Anana begs, pleads with him, and he says, I spent my whole life trying to be a big man. That's what I was talking about with the critique of masculinity mm-hmm. thing. And he says, if, that, if this is what being a man means, 
It's not worth it. And then he goes over, that's when he goes over the side. With and, Minerva. Yeah, and they both hit the ground and die. They talk about it later, like someone literally says this, but yeah, he is like a, he's a, he's a literally tragic figure. He, like, you know, this is like we talked about with like Sandman. Like, though, it turns out that the whole time this other story was happening, the ball story happening within the narrative was like a very like classical tragedy that ends the way they, they all do. Well, not all of them. Sometimes they just get maimed. But this time he dies. Uh, and then they come up with a plan to deal with the cops, which is just to surrender and tell the truth. Well, first they disarm all of their weapons. Well, yeah, which is useful because they definitely would have gotten shot. <laughs> um, yeah, because it's like a SWAT team showing up. I know everybody's like, but they're in England. It's like, yeah, no, it's like a SWAT team. They have guns. <laughs> and they all get sent to jail, even though the judge is like, I appreciate that you told the truth. And that sounds like a very painful thing to go through, but you did a lot of crimes. And <laughs> this is funny. You because have to you, go to jail. There's never like they talked a lot about this like after the what was it the Avengers movie where they went to New York. Yeah, where there was like a lot of conversation on social media about like they destroyed a city. Like there's they superheroes are never hold held accountable for the things that they do. While they're saving you. Yeah, but my answer to that has always been, okay, point me to where the entire U.S. military is in jail. <laughs> oh, you can't do that? Okay, cool. Then Captain America doesn't need to get arrested. <laughs> but yeah, and then but, I like this where it says life and then has the icons for the Pantheon and they're all skulls. Yeah. Which uh, I think is pretty gay. And then it cuts to a future scene. Yeah, this is our big denouement issue. This is the last issue. And the, the structure of this issue is it's 40 years in the future. Very canny technique of jumping far ahead, but only 40 years, so we don't actually know, like, what happens 40 years after that? Is it really all over? Who knows? There's room for a sequel. There's no indication there's going to be a sequel. But he did leave a nice little bit of room for himself to write one if he wanted to. So, it shows Lara, and she's going to Valhalla, which is rebuilt or re is reconstructed, and it's now a, like... It's a museum. It's a museum. It's a museum and park. Right. Well, it's got a little hologram sign from the National Trust. Yes. Uh, but they're they're going to Cassandra's funeral. Right. And then you meet uh, Eleanor, who's still a sassy, very fashionable lady. Yeah. So we find out that like her and Laura were together, and eventually they broke up, and her and Cassandra got together, and Cassandra died. Right. Uh, her and suddenly. Laura and Cassandra were married. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so then we just get like a tour of all the characters when they're older. Eleanor is still a badass. Anana is still mourning. Uh, Ball. Ball. What we get is we get Zahid. That's his name. Uh, we see the more the mural of Ball is still up in Valhalla. Yes. <laughs> um, Which they both spend a little bit of time. I guess they both have a history of relationship with Ball, so they kind of yeah spend some time looking at that. Uh, Tara, when she decides not to get a new body, Mimir is like, "Oh, I can make you like a body," and she's like, "I I would love to do a collaboration." And so she shows up now, and she's in this crazy four armed robot body that looks like it's made out of like twisting pink and white wrought iron. But I also think it's interesting because. In the previous issue, when she was ahead, Mirmir was carrying her around the whole time. Yeah. And it's sort of like, 
gave the hint that maybe they could have a relationship, and it looks like they have. Oh, yeah, of some kind. Yeah, and he looks exactly like his dad, which I think is a yeah. nice touch. But, yeah, apparently he's still creating things, and one of the things that he creates is, is a body for Tara as a musician and an android. Yeah, there's also robot butlers that look like Woden. This is actually a double reference. Yes. Because the robot, it's like this like pill-shaped, floating pill shape with no legs, and arms, but it's got Woden's head. This with a different. This is the same design as an evil robot in one of Karen Gillan's Marvel comics. But also, the tree is like your Giselle. Yeah, you know, because it's kind of like Valhalla, and that's Woden's domain. And there's lots of references to Woden, and then there's sort of this. You get this hint that Mirmir, John may have invested time to build this sort of monument of the new Valhalla to his father. Yeah. Because obviously he is skilled at creating things. He probably created this robot that looks like his father. Yeah. But yeah, they're going to bury Cassandra under this tree. Uh, We get a moment where Laura talks to the former Norns and they they sort of like have this, not like reconciliation, but they, they both, they sort of like, have a moment where they reminisce about Cassandra. And she says, like, you know, it would have meant a lot to her that, that they showed up. And then we get um, Dionysus, and he looks awesome. Yes, he does. He looks... <laughs> we find that his real name is Umar. Yeah, uh, and he kind of makes the same joke that was mentioned in the thing where they said, are you happy? Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. But he's got, like, a salt and pepper beard. He's still bald. But he doesn't have any of the stubble, so he's, like, clean bald now because he's more mature and he's wearing, like, a suit. Uh-huh. And he's got big bushy eyebrows. Yeah, no, he, I, I like his, I, his design as a, a older dude is probably my favorite of the bunch. But, yeah, like, they, they kind of talk about, you know, Baphomet. He makes the, the joke. Uh, they, they talk about Cassandra because, obviously, they're both close to her. And he had the, the moment where he thought he might have been in love with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then she, Laura seems like she's about to start going to give the eulogy, and then in a very baller move, she activates a hologram, and Cassandra gives her own eulogy at her funeral, which rules. She's also dressed like a Jedi. (laughs) (laughs) She's wearing, like, a judge's robe, and, like, a... Well, she was very judgy in the whole series, Like a collarless button-up shirt. Yeah, and she kind of roasts all of them a little bit, but also, like, you know, says something nice about everybody... And she kind of, like, she, as, like, the, the outside observer, like, the critic, I'm a critic, like, that's why your powers don't work on me. Like, she gets to give the final say on all of these characters, which is a nice touch. I also think, and now it's also revealed why Tara has four arms. Because she has a, a double neck guitar. Yeah, but it's a double guitar at the funeral. That rules. <laughs> that is so good. Uh, Aruna, we find out what her name is, too. Everybody hugs, and then it starts to do the four panels. But it's also really nice that like this is a non-God performance. This is just a performance that someone right. does at the end of this story without any of the bullshit. And that's just, like, heartfelt, and it's, like, for a person they care about, and for people they care about, which is really nice. And then we realize that they do the four panels, the four countdown to the click, and Laura does the click. Yeah, she says the future is a... And then she snaps. Yeah, and that's it. You don't... Like you said, that's the ending. You don't know. Does she have the power? Is the recurrence gone? Could there be something else happening in the future? We really don't know. But it seems pretty hopeful, and it seems like that stuff's over. And, like, this is, like, their generation kind of, like, winding down. Cassandra's the first of them to go, naturally. 
not counting all the ones that were killed by violence right in the course of the story and that's the end yeah it's kind of it wraps up pretty succinctly i think and pretty cleanly i don't really have any like lingering questions or anything all the resolutions happened woden got totally destroyed which was like the main thing i was i wanted to see i i they i neatly wrapped like the ball thing which was like so dark and complicated i think got a pretty fitting resolution i like he does go out killing a child like that's the thing right he fucked up because he kills he's killing children that's bad that's why he his fall from grace and then he goes out his like attempt at least at redemption is also killing a child so sad and so fucked up but she's not really a child. But then she sort of has like a moment where she's childlike. Like that that thing with her and Dionysus is like an adult telling a kid yeah. about death. I like the sassy older Eleanor. And I like to imagine her being like almost like a golden girls and having these kind yeah. of like adventures. Yeah, yeah. She's still smoking. But then she comments that she's the one who kept smoking and then Cassandra still died before her. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a, a nice ending. Yeah, I agree. It was a very nice ending. I, I I was pretty satisfied with the with the whole thing overall. I thought I, I it's a good story, totally. I recommend anybody who hasn't if somehow you listened to nine episodes of us talking about this and you didn't read any of it, uh go read it. I think even with the spoilers it would still be a pretty enjoyable time. Yeah, because you you get to see the sort of graphics that go with it, which I think are a great part. That's one of the nicest parts of the series is visually it's it's beautiful the artwork and even when they had the issues where they had guest artists the guest artists fit the theme so well and those issues were really nicely done yeah i totally agree i yeah i think overall this like had amazing art all you know yeah it's, i think that's one of the best things about it like you said is the the visuals and the coloring like this is a different Klaus is really the only other thing I can... Well, no. We've read a couple of comics that have this, like, modern digital coloring. Most of what we've read, though, is, like, older stuff. It has a much flatter, sort of, you know, four-color, old-school coloring style. And this, like, the coloring in this is phenomenal, but it's also so integral to the storytelling and to the style and different scenes being different colors... And the, like, effects around people of, like, their powers. Like, it's plot important that we're able to tell distinctly, like, which flash of divine power corresponds to which person. And there's important character moments where that effect changes and stuff like that. Like, I think that this is, like, the the most we've seen the colors kind of be, like, one of the real stars at the forefront of the book rather than, like, you know, in the back in the rhythm section. Right, right. This is kind of like one of those uh, one of those bands where the bassist plays lead. Uh, yeah, we were talking about that. Like, when would a bassist get a solo? And I guess it would be like in an instance like this. Yeah. Now, to be, I don't want you to think that I'm somehow in a convoluted way dunking on this comic by implying it's like the primus of comics. That is not <laughs> the case here. Well, so we are finished with this and it happens to wrap up on the last episode of 2020 yes 
This is also, if anyone was curious, this is the first episode we've recorded since Donald Trump lost the presidency. Which I think explains Nate's high optimism <laughs> and his metaphor of a bad guy getting jumped, thrown off the building. It was weird because, like, I finished reading this volume before the election was over. And I think I sort of felt very differently about the hopefulness of the ending than I do talking about it now that the election is over and the big wet racist is not going to be the president anymore. Yeah. Uh, like, it feels this. It feels realer to me. Not that I think everything is solved, and I still have lots of problems with the world and the people that are in charge of it, but... It was. It's interesting to to look to sort of reevaluate stuff with a more hopeful ending now that like a major villain of the real world has been defeated in some capacity. But yes, to all of that. But what I was going to ask you is, what are some really great comics that you read in twenty twenty? Some really great. I read a ton of comics in twenty twenty. Uh, I always read a ton of comics. Um, I. What, I don't. I don't. I, I would have to like really look to think about stuff that I read specifically that came out this year, but I did a thing where I went back and I read all of Eight Ball, uh-huh. which was Dan Klaus's anthology comic. That's where Ghost World was originally published, and I'd read a lot of stuff that was in Eight Ball, sort of taken out and collected in other volumes. But getting to see each issue as like an individual artifact with like. The letter section and the shorter stories that haven't really been reprinted everywhere or haven't been reprinted in, like, as accessible collections as some of his other stuff was a really interesting experience. And I shouted out one story in particular, Caricature, which I had never read before, which popped up in there. But I would recommend if you got a chance to to go and read all those issues. I also did a similar thing um, with Chester Brown's anthology, Yummy Fur. Which is an even more sort of novel experience because a lot of that is not collected. He would do like sort of as a backup to each issue these uh, Bible stories, which are really interesting because they're essentially like visual biblical analysis in a way. Like his he's like saying something about the story in the way that he chooses to draw it visually because he does like two different books of the gospel over the course of it, and they're done in completely different styles. He, the way he draws. Jesus is completely different in both of them. The tones are very different, and it's a really interesting um, experience if that's something that you're into, or even even not. Uh, and then the comic, it's sort of, you can trace his artistic evolution. He starts doing this, like, long-running absurdist story with Ed the Happy Clown, which is really funny and really good, and then he transitions into doing these more um, sort of raw... And honest autobiographical comics, which are also really interesting. He does a cool thing at one point where he he has this bi- one issue that's a biographical autobiographical story about a guy that he lived with in a boarding house, and then the next issue is an autobiographical comic about making that issue. It's almost like a director's commentary in comic book form, which I think is really cool. So I would highly recommend checking that stuff out. I believe if you just want to read those autobiographical comics, they're collected somewhere. Uh, by themselves I did a big read through of Usagi Yojimbo this year Uh, for people don't know that is a comic about a rabbit that is a samurai it's really beautiful I don't know if we'd ever cover it for this podcast just because there's so much of it it's like a 26 volumes I've read 16 of them this year but there's some of the like 
some of the most like beautiful, well-crafted, well-paced comic book storytelling I've ever read. He has a really interesting... I keep saying the word interesting. But he, he has an a approach to continuity that I really like where he will, in the lead-up to a big story, just sort of slowly, through what seem like unconnected stories, seeding in these elements that are going to pay off, introducing characters that are important, subtly pushing people into the position they need to be in for then this big epic story to to sort of uh, draw on all of that. He also does a cool thing where he'll, because the main character is like a wandering samurai, we talked uh, in like our Conan episode in Gentleman in the Road how much I love stories about wandering warriors. He will like give him a goal and then over the course of volumes, like a, just like a place to go, he'll slowly travel that way and then things will pop up and waylay him and he'll get involved in trouble and it's a really nice structure for a long-running comic uh so i would definitely recommend checking out some usagi yojimbo i really think a little bit if there's something more recent that i can specifically recommend what were you gonna say I was just going to say I talked about the novel Mexican Gothic and I talked about that in a previous issue episode, but I wanted to um, just give the author's name because I didn't give it. It's Sylvia Moreno Garcia. So that is a good book to look for. It's a 2020 book. I highly recommend that. So what are we what are we doing next? Can we give a little 2021 preview of what we have planned? Or? Yeah, so we are going to... So next month for a novella, we're going to read The Third Man. By Graham Greene. By Graham Greene. And we're going to talk about the... Uh, are you going to try to watch the movie? Yeah, I think we're going to do the movie. I was going to say, we're going to talk about the movie too. I like those episodes. Like We did that with Breakfast at Tiffany's and stuff like that. I'm really interested in this because I've read some Graham Greene stuff before that I've dug, and I've seen the movie, which I love. It's like, genuinely one of my favorite movies. I've never read this, which I think was basically written simultaneously with the screenplay. I'll do a little research, and we'll talk about it in the episode. I have read some of his works in my conquest of various literary lists. So... Um, yeah, yeah. So, and then we are going to do a couple of one-offs like we did, um, in between Sandman and Swamp Thing and and in between Swamp Thing and this. We might have gone directly into Swamp Thing, I don't remember. But we're going to do a couple of one-offs of comics over the next couple months before we get into our next ongoing series. But, I mean, if you want to prep beforehand, our plan for the next big ongoing series is uh, to dig into the works of Grant Morrison, who, at the time of uh, recording this, just recently came out as non-binary. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, so we are going to read some of their comics. Specifically, we're going to go... We're going to do as sort of one big block Animal Man and Doom Patrol. Animal Man's pretty short, and happens... Like, the events that spark Doom Patrol, like, happen over in the course of Animal Man. It's not like Animal... Like, We'll talk about it when we get to the thing. I am currently watching very slowly the Doom Patrol series on HBO Max. I have not read the comics, but mm-hmm. I've watched some of the... So I'm an expert. Yeah. I, so don't I'm, worry, I'll be able to get through this. No I problem. haven't watched any of the Doom Patrol show, but I'm going to watch it so all when I we know, talk about it. So that'll be cool. All I know about Doom Patrol is what I've seen on the one season of the series and hearing Nate talk about it since he was like... 
uh, 13. <laughs> well, maybe eight. I was, I, because they're, they're, they've, we will talk about it. I'm not getting into it now. We'll have a whole time to do lots and lots of discussion of Doom Patrol. It's one of my favorite comics. But before we do that, well, like I said, we're going to do some one-offs. So the next comic, January's comic, uh, is going to be something that I did read this year, uh, that I really liked, which is How to Be Happy by Eleanor Davis. Okay. She's a cartoonist. She writes and draws the whole thing. It's a series of vignettes that each on a meditation of the theme of happiness, all drawn in wildly different styles. I would also recommend to people, which I, I read, a, I did a big read, not big, because I, I read three of them, but I read a bunch of her stuff this year. And I would also recommend her other comics, uh, The Hard Tomorrow, which came out last year. That's like a sci-fi thing. And Why Art, which is a really, it's a, like a metafictional comic about the concept of art, but it's also like an absurdist story. That's really good. Uh, we might talk about it at some point on this podcast, but I would recommend checking out all of her stuff. So, oh, there's. I want to do one last recommendation for a comic I read in 2020. It is another <laughs> older one. Uh, but I did a big read-through of as much of the works of Mobius, Jean Girard, the classic French comic book artist as I could this year. Uh, one in particular that I really loved, that is pretty easy to get your hands on. A lot of his stuff... It's reprinted here and there, or it's in reprints, it's in collections that are out of print. But I believe still in print from Dark Horse is a comic called Edena, which is a big epic sci-fi story he did, which weirdly started as a promotional comic for Citroen, the automotive manufacturer. That's great. Some incredibly beautiful art, really interesting sci-fi concepts in there. Highly recommended. Also, if you can get your hands on Airtight Garage, which is one that's a little bit hard to come by, uh, read that too, because that shit is fucking wild. Uh, but yeah, in the immediate future, we're going to read The Third Man, and then we're going to read How to Be Happy. Sounds good. Uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone. Happy New Year. <laughs>